star. Nice large room in there. Uh, while you're being seated, go ahead and take your Bibles in terms of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. In a moment, we're going to read verses 9 to the end of Romans chapter 12. It's great to see everybody today on this crisp fall day. Uh, for all of you pumpkin spice fans, we now give you permission. All right. It's cold enough this week to do that. Um, if this is your first time here, my name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. We're really uh, excited to dig into God's Word this morning. We're continuing our series uh, called Gospel Clarity in the Book of Romans. And we are going to be studying the Book of Romans throughout the rest of the fall. We're in chapter 12, reading verses 9 through 21. Verse 9 says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for the clarity of the instruction in this passage. Lord, for the ways that it so practically challenges us in the way that we go about our lives. We pray that you'd help us to be able to see what you would have us see in it today. That our hearts would be open, Lord, to... Uh, to adjust our lives to your instruction, to see the wisdom of your commands and your guidance. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a desire to exhibit your love both in the body and in the community for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, raise your hand this morning if you know who Helmut von Moltke is. Okay, come get him up nice and high. All right, I'm counting. I want to see how many. All right, all right. Uh, a lot of our Marines know who that is. I love, I love phrases, you know, like catchphrases. And uh, I like to dig into them. Uh, you know, Helmut von Moltke was a 19th century Prussian military commander who keenly observed that no plan of operations extends with certainty beyond the first encounter with the enemy's main strength. Now that's a mouthful. That's why all the Marines I know have shrunk it down to no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Right? 
common phrase. It's a pithy way of expressing the disorientation that we experience when we step into a situation with certain aspirations and fresh commitments but fail to realize that reality has no plans of working with us in our cause. You may, recommend, you may recognize the same sentiment from a more expect, expected bastion of life wisdom, Mike Tyson, who famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Now, you've probably heard that before. It's Mike Tyson's most famous quote. I was curious about that quote and whether it was real, and I found an article, uh, and uh, it was originally published in the South Florida Sun Sentinel, where Tyson explains the origins of the quote, and here's what he had to say. It came about because people were asking me before a fight, what's going to happen? Tyson said. They were talking about his style. He's going to give you a lot of lateral movement. He's going to move. He's going to dance. He's going to do this, do that. What are you going to do? And I said, everybody has a plan until they get hit. Then like a rat, they stop in fear and freeze. Well, in the, here in the remainder of Romans 12, the Apostle Paul, after moving us to join him in a, in a life of being a living sacrifice, verse 1 and 2, he, sa he says, because of the mercies of God, because of the power of the gospel, we should be a living sacrifice. We should devote ourselves to God. We should see his will worked out in our lives. And he does you know, very motivational instruction. And then he shows us that really living a life of sacrifice is about us living a life of love, of sacrifice for one another, of connectivity with one another. Practically speaking, devotion to God looks like learning to love one another in reality. And, and you know, for a lot of Christians, theoretically, if you would say, what does it really look like to live, live as a Christian? It's, it's about loving one another and exhibiting God's love. And we've got a great plan. And then we leave Sunday morning. And we go home, right? The famous car ride home, everybody's hungry. Somebody's getting into an argument and exhibiting God's special kind of love by laying down the hammer. That rolls into Monday morning and other situations we face. And we realize, you know, we have this plan to live a life of sacrifice and worship to God, this desire expressed to love God. But practically, when we come into reality, that plan goes out the window and we find ourselves disoriented by the reality of life. How do we, how do we move from theory to practice? You know, so often we claim to love one another, to love God, to love people, want to love our community, and, and we say this sort of thing, but, but like in shape, we never pour ourselves into the mold of what it actually looks like to do that. And we find all, our way, our, all these different ways to excuse ourselves around what it looks like while still telling ourselves at the heart we really want to be loving. And here... Paul is helping the Romans deal with just this subject, this high theoretical idea that they're going to live for God, but having to see what it actually looks like in reality and deal with the challenges of their own heart. So, the truth is everyone preaches sacrifice and love in theory, but reality has a way of Reality just has a way of changing our minds quickly about the things that matter most. And without the ongoing transformation of the gospel, 
when we encounter reality, our love will fail to be genuine and our witness will lack power. And so here we're going to talk today about how genuine spiritual devotion, like genuine spiritual devotion turns into genuine love in the church and genuine love in the community. And he gives us some some ideas about what that actually looks like practically and what it will require of us. And so if you're jotting down notes today and you want the big main idea, the main idea is that genuine spiritual devotion, this is a life with God. A life devoted to God. Sort of think about your vertical relationship with God. Like a genuine vertical relationship with God turns into genuine love in the church and in the community. And he describes that with a bunch of fast-moving phrases so that we can't weasel our way out of real-life situations. That's what's going on here. And so when we look at that main idea, we're going to look at two kind of practical ways it falls out in the passage that we're looking at. In 9 through 13, primarily he's speaking to Christians and how they interact with one another. I'll show you that in a moment. And then when we turn from there, generally he's speaking about what that looks like outside the body of Christ in the community in which we live. What does it look like for us to live lives of love? And so we're going to look at those two in turn. The first one is that genuine spiritual devotion in the church produces genuine love. Let's look specifically at verses 9 through 13 together now. If you briefly glance at the beginning of verse 9, it says, let love be genuine. What's really interesting is when you look there, uh, he references, uh, you'll notice, in, in that section of 9 through 13, he references one another twice. He's writing to a church, a group of Christians, and he talks about the treatment of fellow saints, which here means uh, all those who follow Christ. And so his focus in these verses 9 through 13 is helping us get a handle on what it looks like for us to love one another in reality, genuine love inside the body of Christ. Now you notice, I, I don't know if when you were listening to me read this at the beginning, you felt just kind of overwhelmed by an onslaught of phrases. It's like short sentences, right? And if you count them up, there's, there's more than two dozen like small little phrases back to back. And you're like, you know, I'm going to do that one. I'm going to do that. Wait, I got to do that one too. And it's just like back to back. It, it doesn't feel like there's much that unifies it. But actually the only verbal thrust in verses 9 through 13 comes in the first phrase where it says, uh, let love be genuine in the ESV. And so what's going on here, actually, is you probably have let love be genuine or in a different translation, you might have something that says love is not hypocritical. Like most specifically, the the Greek text here says love is without hypocrisy. So that means there's a possible way for us to claim love and be hypocritical. Paul's concern is that we would embrace a non-hypocritical love. It's sort of he's enjoining us as the, as the heading of verse 9 through 13. He's saying, let love not be hypocritical. And then, then that's, that's kind of the main verb command phrase. And every other phrase that you read should really end in an ing, which means that it supports the idea of what it looks like to not be hypocritical in love. Are you tracking with me? So how do we not be hypocritical in love? Well, we do it by abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. You see, these are all going to tell us how we make sure our love isn't hypocritical love. 
It's possible for us to have all sorts of ways to claim that we love one another, that we love other people, but not be measured by anything clear because love feels like a fuzzy emotion and not clear substance. So here he starts to make it more clear for us. So he fills it out. So the, the Greek phrase, love is not hypocritical, is a colorful theatrical one associated with actors who wore masks. They would wear masks to play different characters in a play than who they really were as a person. Makes sense, right? I mean, we know that the people in movies aren't really the character in the movies. Sometimes they become so strongly associated with them, we have trouble dividing them out, right? But in those times, they would often wear masks to distinguish between characters in plays and in dramas. And and Paul is saying love is not the sort of thing that you can really unmask to reveal beneath the surface that there's no substance. That's not love. You remember the old show Scooby-Doo? Right, all my 40-year-olds out there, right, 80s kids. I feel like Scooby-Doo always had the same plot, didn't it? They were headed on some adventure to get away from their life of solving mysteries. And so they hopped on a cross-country train ride. And all of a sudden, there was something fishy going on. That's the phrase they seem to use in every episode. And before you knew it, they were in the midst of a full-blown mystery on the train cross-country. And when they unmasked the villain at the end, it turned out to be the train conductor, who at the beginning was so nice to them and was happy to see them and welcomed there. But in the midst of all of that, he was the one that got unmasked as the villain of the mystery that they had to solve. There was always this This connection between a character. Almost every one of the plots had to do with someone who seemed nice and helpful at the beginning being unmasked as the villain at the end. And Paul is saying, we have to be careful because we could have the same hypocrisy that we would claim a sort of love with one another and and desire that, but, but our life would unmask the fact that deep down we really don't care about that. We care about serving ourselves. We care about what, what's in it for us. And so what happens here is he says, let your love be without hypocrisy. And then all of the other descriptions are helping us come to grips with what genuine love looks like in reality. And we're just going to kind of brush over them. Uh, the way you should hear it is by, like I said, by putting ing at the end, ending on the verbs, which really represents the text here well. Love is unhypocritical by abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. There's, there's something actually hypocritical about a love that flirts with what is not good and easily abandons what is. Love is unhypocritical. It, it exercises a family type of affection with one another as brothers. What he's saying is there's, there's something hypocritical about, about a lack of familial warmth and distance from one another in the church. You know, I don't know how you perceive what this gathering is, but in the eyes of God, and as we pursue a description given by the Bible, we're a family of faith. You know, when people come in and out, 
on a weekly basis and they experience no familiar warmth, no desire to, uh, uh, from people to be connected, no sense of real desire to know and understand one another. It makes it seem uh, like church is more like an event that we, we go to than it is a family who we belong to. We began the service talking about what it means to be called by God and to be put into family and to have a sense of belonging. But how does the church how does the church experience that kind of familial belonging? Well, it experiences it when individual people who are a part of the congregation don't just think they're coming to an event, but they realize they're gathering with family and, and they have a role to play week in, week out in helping the other people in the church experience a sense of brotherly affection as it's described here. Genuine love. He says, love is unhypocritical by outdoing one another and showing honor. That's because there's something fake about a love that is really trying to get you to honor me rather than me working to honor you. And it says we really can see love spring up in a group of people when they're, they're sort of falling over top of one another to try to honor each other. To highlight the good things about someone else rather than to undercut them. And there's a sort of insecurity that undercuts love, isn't it? Where, where every time somebody praises another person around me, I've got to find a way to make fun of it and to cut them down some. Because I'm not comfortable with other people being seen in positive ways around me because it brings out my own insecurity for wanting to be great. And he says, really what happens is genuine love is seen in a group of people who are outdoing one another to show honor to one another, genuine affection that says, man, do you see that person? Do you see how faithfully they serve setting up week in and week out? And I'm so thankful to be a part of church where there are people that get here at 8 a.m. and they work hard, they don't complain, so that others can come in at 10.30 or 10.45, as we saw today, and uh, gather on in and not have to worry about it. And week after week, they do it without complaining, rejoicing. And it's not just that category, right? It's throughout the week, you know, hearing stories about someone who took a meal to a neighbor or someone who just recently had a baby with no recognition because they want to make sure that they're, they're cared for and loved, not because someone else got them to, but just out of a desire to honor that season of their life. And do you have any relationships in your life? I just, I think it's important for you to think about this. Do you have any relationships in your life where, where in that group of people, you're outdoing one another and showing honor? You don't care about reflecting on yourself or drawing honor to you, but it's like there, there's a sense of really a deep appreciation. He says, without that, really, our claims to love are hypocritical. See, love is unhypocritical. It, serving the Lord in our love for one another without a slothfulness, it says, and a real fervency of spirit. Uh, I love how it says in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. What, he, what he's really showing us here is that love springs out of the fact that we feel deeply loved by God as we, as we appropriate the truths of the gospel. And so we have a real zeal, like a passion that we, with which we serve God, whether it's in the body or relationally or in the community. There's a real sense of passion for it, not because of how other people receive it, but because we feel like it's our opportunity of worship to serve the Lord. 
And when we do that, our love isn't, it can't be unmasked. It found to be really something else underneath it. I mean, do you get the sense often in your own life or from others around you that there's something beneath their love? You know what I'm talking about? Where, where on the surface, the kindness, there's, there's, a, there's a hook in there? You see, one of the greatest gifts that we can give to people in our life is love without a hook. Where the love isn't a bait to draw something out of them, but it's just a, a zeal, a desire of our own spirit to care for them and to give to them without any concern for what we might get. What does genuine love look like? In hope, it's rejoicing. In trials, it's enduring with one another. In trials, in prayer, devoting ourselves to one another. In prayer. I mean, just, it, I just think it's important just to mention here, as he mentions, devotion to one another in prayer. Who do you know well enough in your life with other believers that you can pray in a devoted way for them? You see, this is the kind of love that the body is invited to engage in with one another. You can't do that for every person in this room, but you can do it for some people in this room. And what he says is that that, a fer that sort of fervency in prayer is the thing that is, goes way beyond letting someone know out of courtesy you're praying for them if they you know, let, let you know there's something going on in their life, but actually praying for them regularly caring about what's going on in their life, praying, lifting them up before the Lord. And he says, you know, when these things aren't happening, we have reason to think that our love is hypocritical. There's no real substance to it. You see, genuine love survives contact with reality and is shown to be full of substance. But all of these things only come about as the gospel of Jesus is accomplished through the cross. That same gospel now works in us and it brings out the shape of the cross in us. You see, love looks like what Jesus has done for us in the cross in laying down his life and trusting that God will use that to bring good fruit. And so what we do in love is we imitate the shape of the cross. We're willing to bear up burdens and suffering and responsibility, pay the cost so that other people experience blessing and joy and support. And that is what substantive love looks like. You see, Jesus' sacrifice is both our atonement and forgiveness of, us, of sin and our example of love that meets reality with substance day by day. So genuine spiritual devotion in the church produces this powerful culture of genuine love that is revealed to have more and more substance as it is tested by reality. And if, if there's going to be a vibrancy to a church like ours or any church, what's going to have to happen is people in that church are going to decide that they want to substantially love one another. And they're going to measure it by things that go beyond their emotion and feelings. They're going to measure it by practices that he outlines here. And they're going to let those practices teach them how unwilling they are often to engage on a heart level and ask God to transform them as they submit themselves to God and love others. So genuine spiritual devotion in the church produces this powerful culture of genuine love that is revealed to have more and more substance as it is tested by reality. That's the first thing we see. But then what, what he does is he wants us to show us the way that, uh, that unhypocritical love 
exhibits itself beyond the body. And so the rest of the passage is really about when we disperse into life and we live our lives as Christians in the midst of the world, what does that look like? And the second point is genuine spiritual devotion in the community. What it does is it produces a Godward witness. It produces a Godward witness. So much of what passes for Christian activity in the world, Christian witness in the world, fails to really be rooted in a sense of Godward trust. You see, we're so strategic. We think that we've figured out how to be effective, what needs to be done. And here what he says is, there's a lot broken about our lives, a lot broken about the world, so much so that genuine Christian witness is going to be confusing to people around us in such a way that, it, it, that the only answer is, well, that's what would honor God. The only answer would be, that, that's what God's called me to be. That looks like what Jesus does on the cross. That that sort of Godward witness is seen in the way we deal with a host of situations. And so with this theme of persecution introduced in verse 14, most commentators on Romans recognize there's a shift from focusing on how genuine love is played out in the church as a family to how it is played out as we encounter the community around us with our faith and bear witness that we're people of the cross. That we're people whose lives have been shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so in this text we see it again. We should keep in mind that it all is controlled by the desire to show us what genuine love looks like as we encounter reality and not just theoretically. And the entire pattern is an outworking of the love of the cross through our lives in a faithful patterned way. The cross of Jesus Christ is the provision for our sin and the pattern for how our lives actually bear fruit for God. Our witness will cause people to look to God for salvation when it is distinctly shaped like the cross of Jesus. You see, the biggest problem that we have as Christians in America is we want to talk about knowing God, but our knowing God doesn't look like very much like embracing the cross of Jesus. Sometimes we, call, we, we distinguish in theology between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And a theology of glory, by and large, what it is, is it's types of theology and types of instruction from God's word that expects glory before the resurrection rather than the imitation of the cross of Jesus. Where the expectation is that, that, that because I've come to faith in Christ, that my life is just going to go on in, in from sort of one step to another of success, receptivity, rejoicing, and glory. And that, that, that anything that requires sacrifice, suffering, ongoing endurance, and perseverance, God certainly wouldn't expect that from me. And so we, what we really see here in, in a passage like this is that, that theologies of glory, that expect glory before the resurrection of Jesus, that brings us into eternity with him, are, are always going to let us down and will not provide the kind of witness to the world of where our hope really lies. 
that we have to embrace a theology of the cross that says that the way that Christians will display their hope in Jesus Christ is by being willing to be faithful to God no matter what the receptivity is. And not a rude, disjointed kind of faithfulness but one that truly loves our enemies, loves those who reject us, cares about people who disagrees with us, has, has a, a heart that seeks peace. You can have clarity about what you believe without being a jerk. I think we know that, but so we're, we're so inexperienced in many ways of, of talking about spiritual things with, with people outside our little shell that it turns into very combative conversations. We finally got our chance to go to war for Jesus, and and we're going to take it. But a passage like this says, actually, when we do it right, there's there's a whole different flavor to it. just, Just think about what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Do not curse them. Like, if you, if we were to just kind of stop explaining around passages like this and be like, well, yeah, but if you, know, you got to put your foot down eventually, right? Like, wh- what happens is we get this instruction that invites us into taking up our cross and being faithful to the Lord, not out of pride about how good we are, but because we believe it bears genuine fruit of love for God. And it points people to, to the only explanation that would call out the sort of responses that are gracious to those who disagree with us. It's God. We trust Him. We totally trust that God can use us looking like a failure for his glory. I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe that God can use us being willing to, to be willing to lay down our lives, be gentle and patient and gracious to bless those who persecute us, not to just put our foot down and be fighting the battles, but God can use us as we just trust him. That God is ultimately the one who takes what we offer to him and uses it for his glory and draws attention to himself. That God is perfectly capable of bringing fruit from our willingness to sacrifice in love for others. Even if it doesn't look successful to the world. Or even worse, successful to one another. That he invites us to this kind of Genuine love is so obvious. He tells us to bless those who would persecute us. Our witness fails to point to our Godward hope when it turns to evil as soon as it is mistreated. But if you know the story of the cross of Jesus, you know that Jesus accomplished our salvation by seeking to be a blessing even to those who at the time were persecuting him. That long before you ever thought about loving God, Jesus was loving you by laying down his life and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. You see, for our love to not be hypocritical, it's it's shown in rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Our witness fails to point to our Godward hope in the gospel when we communicate that we are unconcerned about what people are actually experiencing in life. One of the most amazing passages in the Bible is found uh, in John chapter 11 where uh, Lazarus dies. You guys remember this story? Lazarus dies and Jesus knows 
that he's coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he arrives with, with Mary and Martha, they're weeping. And, and, and just, just picture it for a moment. They're weeping about the loss of their brother, rightfully so. Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But he enters into this moment. And he weeps with them. He weeps with them. I, I always found it really, really interesting because, you know, okay, well, why didn't you say, hang on a second. Hang on a second, I'm going to go raise him from the dead. <laughs> now, see, even in our own lives, there's so many times where we go, you know, we say to one another, even as Christians, there's, there's eternity coming, why would you weep? Well, li listen, there's a lot of brokenness that we endure until that day comes. And whether Jesus was going to raise him from the dead 10 minutes later, the sorrow of the moment grabbed his heart. What would it look like for us as Christians to weep first with people who are hurting before we correct them, explain why they don't need to be hurting or cause their own problems? <laughs> this is the sort of thing that happens all the time. Pick an issue. But we've been called to look at people's sorrow, even if it's sorrow caused by sin, to, and, to, and to weep with people, to really be able to understand the depths of people's pain. We know it. Some of us in this room have wept this week over difficulties and hardship, even while holding on to the light of the gospel, knowing the hope that is coming, we've wept. And, and yet in a world that is broken and hurting and so many people's lives are struggling, we can sometimes be incredibly callous. And there's a Godward witness to being able to enter into people's pain and care about it. It says something about the fact that we can be rooted and we don't feel like we're just going to be blown away by, by really actually affirming that people hurt. And when you can do that, you can speak from a different place. It makes all the difference speaking from inside the pain of somebody who's weeping, where you've sat with them, than it does from the outside. And we all know that intuitively. And so we're told to be able to rejoice with people, to find ways to celebrate with the things that they celebrate, to, to weep with those who weep, and, and, to, and to think about how we enter deeply the way that Jesus did. Jesus himself went to the cross to complete our joy, and he's full of compassion for those who weep. He says that genuine love will be found in concerning ourselves with the lowly and not just those whose status we desire. And how powerful of a witness would it be for a church in Prince William County to primarily concern themselves with people who are struggling in our county and what we can do to care for them. And to be associated with the lowly. He says that, it, that genuine love is found in being seen in harmony with one another. Our witness will fail to point to our Godward hope when its power cannot cause us to live in harmony with those who share in it. Here he actually isn't just saying, hey, love one another for your sake inside. But he's saying there's something at stake when we can't even remain in harmony with one another through the power of the gospel. And yet we want to say to other people, be reconciled to God. We have a responsibility to pursue the greatest amount of unity we can around the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church and to live in a way that isn't constantly bickering over third order issues. And some of the way, listen, some of the way we carry our politics in the church doesn't even bother to consider this. 
And listen, it's, politics, people have strong feelings about them. I'm not going to deny that they're rooted in deeper beliefs, some of which are even biblical. But politics is a dirty, difficult game. And the responsibility for how we carry the different things we believe about life and the different ways we think about voting and the different ways that we exercise our life as citizens, the way we carry that matters too. There's a way to disagree in a way that is harmonious with one another and doesn't, doesn't create the kind of dissension in the church that we've observed for the last two or three years. Am I the only one who's observed it? <laughs> There's something broken about that. And, and we want to be a place here where we can talk clearly about ideas and our conversations with one another. But there's a sense of harmony because we know that we have a deeper root in the gospel. And we're not going to just cut one another off because we disagree. And if you spend time with one another, and I've spent time with a lot of you, you're going to find people all over the spectrum in terms of different things about how they play out their lives and what's important to them. And we have to be able to see clearly enough the power of the gospel that unites us around the cross, even when we disagree about other things. And instead of getting bent out of shape and saying, this person's not a Christian for thinking that, or that person is because they agree with me. We've got to be willing to have real conversations and, and to have a sense of harmony in the midst of them. Then he says that it looks like giving thought to what is honorable in the sight of all and makes peace. As I said, we may not always come to agreement or be in control of whether we're at peace. We may not always be seen as honorable by those who disagree with us in the world. But our witness will fail to point to our Godward hope when we are not strongly concerned with how our lives and decisions communicate what matters to us before the eyes of those who see us and know us. You want to exhibit a powerful witness? Concern yourselves with avoiding the dishonor of repaying evil for evil and embrace the honor of seeking as far as it depends on you to be at peace with others. You know, as Christians, we don't, we don't do takedowns. That's the instruction. We Honor is, is to characterize other people in the best way that we can. And here he says, one of the biggest things that can put us in danger is repaying evil for evil. You see, when, when, when other people look around and they see people repaying evil for evil, they automatically consider it dishonorable. The kind of talk like that, you know, the, the tough outside, you're not going to get me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you back. Don't you burn me. That kind of talk's not Christian talk. That's not cross-shaped talk. That's not Jesus imitating talk. That comes from somewhere else entirely. A worldly wisdom that doesn't trust what God is ultimately going to bring to pass. That doesn't believe that we'll stand and give an account before God when we worship a, a Savior who laid down His life, who took a beating for us. Who absorbed the pain of the crucifixion so that we could be set free. There's nothing honorable about repaying evil for evil, and that's why He 
spends the last couple verses focusing on it by saying so clearly in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. It's the strongest statement in the second half of the, the passage. Never avenge yourself. How many exceptions are there to the rule of avenging ourselves? Zero. And so he says, as Christians, if we want to exhibit a Godward witness, what we do is we determine we are never going to avenge ourselves because we believe something. We believe we are feeble and frail creatures who do not always see clearly what's going on. But we have a God who is a judge. We have a God who is a righteous judge. And one day we will tremble before him when everything is in his hands. And I won't be worrying about my neighbor. I'll be worrying about myself before God because I know I have fallen short so many times. Therefore, we leave the judging to God and the being faithful to never avenge ourselves is our task. And he goes on and on and he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That, that the Lord has his own plans for how he's going to take care of evil. That we entrust ourselves to it. To the contrary then, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now here, he's primarily talking in your interpersonal relationships how you interact with people. You know, I'd love to explain the burning coals on the head thing. And you've maybe heard sermons on this passage where there's like all these like stories about how they do it. Nobody, listen, nobody knows what it means. I'm just going to be honest with you. I did a ton of research on it. Uh, obviously, it's quoting a passage in Proverbs, which is referring to an ancient Egyptian practice of which it is very hard to nail down exactly why people were heaping coals on tops of other people's heads. But the underlying idea seems to be that there's something about, about being faithful and kind and not repaying evil for evil. In fact, doing good to those who treat us as enemies that actually makes it shameful for them to go on doing, doing evil. That really what we're to do is out of a genuine love for God, continue to be faithful so it begins to expose just how wrong it is to go forward with the continuous evil. That's the, that's the heart of it. That's why he ends in verse 21 by saying, do not overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't repay evil for evil. We never attempt to wield evil to overcome evil, but take refuge in doing what is good, even when we expect in the near term it may mean suffering and failure. Why do we do that? Why would we take a strategy that says, I'm going to do good to those who are even treating me in an evil way, even if in the short term it looks like we'll be overcome by it? Why would we do that? Well, it's because that's how we were saved. The Jesus we bear witness to entrusted himself on the cross fully to God. And before the eyes of his persecutors, he was defeated. In their presence, he put his hope in the Father for his own rescue and his own vindication. He was not vengeful, but filled with compassion for those who in their ignorance would treat him with dishonor. And because he did, he finished the work to testifying to the saving power of God and accomplished our salvation through his suffering. 
The harsh reality of a sinful world did not overcome him, even in death. And because of it, he overcame sin and death forever on our behalf. He didn't only accomplish our salvation, he showed us how we can bear witness to our hope in God as people watch our lives even now. These moments of reality that we talked about earlier that expose the thin layer of love that we really have, they hit us and they force us to reckon with the weakness of our theoretical commitment and devotion. But they also invite us to be transformed. To become a people who are not conform to the pattern of the world, Romans 12, 1 and 2, but transformed by the power of living inside this kind of experience of love and seeing what God does. Up the road uh, in a place called Caroline Furnace, I remember at one point learning about the furnace uh, the, the old furnaces that were there in the Shenandoah that were made to produce iron. And at the bottom was a container for melted metal. That container was called a crucible. In metalwork, crucibles are the little containers that are used for melting down a metal in order for it to be transformed and prepared for another use. These moments of reality that Paul is talking about, that he's preparing, that he's saying we're going to experience, they're crucibles for us. They're, they're moments where our lives are poured into the shape of the cross to be transformed. They're the transformative moments. They're where, they're where God does his deepest work in us to make us like him in those moments where we're called to love with real substance. Real life is a crucible that brings us face to face with our need. It melts us down for the transforming work of the gospel to be to be displayed in us in the shape of the cross. As we allow our lives to, be, to exhibit these kind of characteristics and we step into these moments and we submit our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, our lives before Him, what happens is we become transformed by those moments. They change us. They change what we believe, what we hope in. As we allow our lives to be poured into this form of genuine love, it produces a genuine love in our churches and a powerful witness in our communities. Now listen, here's the point of all this. It's likely that you have in your life this morning a situation or two that are calling you to display this genuine, non-hypocritical kind of love. The reality of that situation has you disoriented. <laughs> you want to cast the person off. You want to run from the situation. You want to dominate it, overcome it with the same sort of evil or brokenness you yourself are experiencing. Listen, this is your moment of worship. The next thing you do is you imitate the love of the cross of Jesus. That is your practical act of worship before God that exhibits a life of genuine spiritual devotion. This moment in your life is an opportunity of worship. And so as we close this morning, before we go into taking the Lord's Supper together, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. The band's going to come back up. In a moment, we're going to sing. I'm not going to do anything to make you come up front or anything like that, but I do want us to take a moment before we sing to close for you to respond to the Lord. So I'm just going to ask for us to enter into a time of 
quiet in prayer before God. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Is there something like this in your life where God is calling you to challenging acts of love and endurance? Where right now as an act of worship you can devote yourself to substantive love that's described here. And maybe you need to just commit to the Lord right now as you take this time that you are going to depart from this place and you're going to walk in his instruction. Confess to him how difficult it is. Ask for the power of his spirit to strengthen you. God, we pray that you would allow these crucible moments in our life to bear fruit in us, to produce in us a genuine life that imitates Christ and gives a Godward witness that nourishes others around us. Lord, would you even now, by your Holy Spirit, be touching our hearts to strengthen us, not for hypocritical love, but Lord, the kind of love that when it's pressed, it's found to be substantive and real, the kind of love that comes from you strengthened by your spirit and displayed for us on the cross we would devote ourselves to walking with Jesus in these moments in his name we pray